Welcome to His Story, a teaching series with Pastor Mickey Bryce from Center Stage Church. This nine-part series explores the story of God from a theater perspective. Now, here's Mickey Bryce. We want to welcome you this morning, whether you're here in the room, which you all are, or whether you're listening to the podcast at some time later in the future. Today, we are uh, on our way through the Bible. We're at the end of the Old Testament, about to segue in two weeks into the New. Today, where we find our uh, folks, the Jews, is in a bad place. Our podcast series called History is using, if you don't know already by now, pictures from the theater in honor of our ministry, uh, Zeo Theater. Today, it's kind of a hopelessness and despair. What happens after the theater burns down? There's no more famous picture in theater of a theater burning down than Phantom of the Opera. Listen to what was printed in the New York Times, November 13th, 1873. There it is on the screen if you're here live. The Paris Opera, it says, took fire last night with such rapidity that it was clear that the building was doomed. The old building flamed up as if petroleum had lit up to hasten its destruction and all Paris was illumined with the glare. Great deal of sympathy is felt for the troupe and the subscription already announced for the poor members out of work at the beginning of winter. And of course, that true event was uh, memorialized in Phantom of the Opera. December 26, 2004. You may remember a massive tsunami rocked the coast of Thailand, killing thousands of people. It says the aftermath is hopeless. It was bad. There's a picture of it. You may remember also a raging storm of tornadoes that crossed the Midwest, what they call Tornado Alley, on Sunday, May the 4th, 2003. One of the worst tornado outbreaks in American history killed 39 people in obliterated towns in three states. In 2009, a commuter plane crashes in Buffalo, New York, killing 50 people just five minutes before it was supposed to land. What a terrible, terrible thing. You might remember that. Some of our friends in Buffalo do for sure. And we all remember the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, I can remember the one in 1987 as well. I don't know that it was as bad as the one in 2008, but it all depends on your perspective. But I remember the feeling that we had both times. It was a feeling of hopelessness and despair. So what I want to present to you and ask the question today, what happens to you when hopeless times come? What happens to you? How do you respond to that? Well, you're a human being, so I kind of know how you might respond to it, but sometimes I'm surprised the way people respond. Here's another question. Many people, not just believers, but non-believers, where is God in times of trouble? We believe that God's in charge. How can God allow things to happen? 
that are negative. Why would he do that? Well, there's an answer for that. It's a very good answer in scripture. We're going to look at that too. What is our reaction when our theater burns down, so to speak? Knock on wood. (laughs) Where is God when our theater burns down? Where are you when your theater burns down? I want to present to you an idea that as we move on from situations like our theater burning down, here's the idea. This is what the Bible teaches. Hopelessness and despair are perfect opportunities to put God first. Perfect opportunities. In fact, that's why they come. In order that we can put God first. We're moving through scripture from cover to cover, examining the story of God and how it can live in us. Last week, we visited Daniel in captivity and how Daniel was faithful to God and how God blessed Daniel's faithfulness and how he prospered him even in captivity. Today, we want to fast forward to another prophet. You may have heard less about him. His name was Haggai. We're going to see what happens to the people of God's story after they return to Israel, some of them, and how the house of God is rebuilt from being destroyed. If you recall, before Daniel, the the, uh, city of Jerusalem had been conquered and it had been uh, largely destroyed. All the people were taken away, a, a number of the people, most of them, into captivity in Babylon. By the time of Haggai, Babylon has fallen to Persia or Iran, modern day Iran. And we're going to see where the Jews are in all of that. It's a little bit different than under Iraqis or the Babylonians. And we're going to see God himself ask the Jewish people to put God first in this setting. So my name is Mickey Bryce, and it's my privilege to teach this podcast series, this sermon series, if you will, through the books of the Bible, the selected books of the Bible. And I hope you're enjoying it. If not, uh, you can comment. I don't have to tell all of you that you can comment. You do so regularly. But there are ways to comment on the uh, podcast as well. So let's pray and ask God to open up the eyes of our heart. Father, thank you today for your word. Thank you that it is true and it is right and it is good. Father, many times our life doesn't seem to measure up to that and we are confused about you. I pray, Father, that some of that uh, smoke might clear in our understanding, that you might visit us in your word here in the book of Haggai today as we trust you for our own futures. And we thank you for that today in Jesus' name. Amen. So Haggai, third book from the end of the, of the Old Testament. It's a one or maybe two pages in your Bible. You will recall, as we talked about last week, Israel was conquered by the Babylonians and the best and brightest were hauled off to Babylon to serve as slaves. Anybody remember the year that happened? Except for Rob. 586 B.C., Okay, in 539 BC, 
Persia conquered Babylon and all of what was Babylon came under the influence of Persia, including all of the captive Jews. Essentially, the Iranians conquered the Iraqi, for lack of modern terminology. And we see that the Persians had a different philosophy of governance than did the Babylonians. Instead of hauling off the best and brightest from whatever country they conquered like the Babylonians, the Persians wanted to encourage whatever cultures they conquered militarily and to preserve the religion of the conquered countries. It was a little bit late, if you will, for Israel because they had already had it hauled off. So they, in 538 BC, the leader of the Persians, whose name was Cyrus, issued a decree, kind of like an executive order, a little more authority than that, allowed the Jews to return to their homeland in Jerusalem, in Judah. So they went. One of those who went was Haggai among many others, and they were given in time the um, command to uh, rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But when they got there, it wasn't the same. Has anybody here ever been in a situation where your home burned down? Perish the thought. Have you ever known anybody that that happened to? It's terrible. It's not just physically terrible not just financially terrible, it's emotionally terrible. That's what I've understood from the people that I know, that it attacked their heart in a way that was unexpected. So you can imagine the uh, Jewish people, the ones of them that did return when they got back, and there wasn't hardly anything there. The temple had been destroyed. Homes had been destroyed, wrecked. There was no fabric in the city at all. It was like going back and having to camp out where you used to live. It was in many ways like a humongous tornado or tsunami had taken out the, uh, essentially the whole city and lots of the country. The culture was in shambles. The most Jewish of the people were in another country. God was preserving that. But when they got back, it was an opportunity to to cry more than anything. And I think we experience that exactly. I think we can all look to something in our life where we went back thinking things were going to be the way they were and they weren't. And the first thing is the realization of that brings a overwhelming sadness when you think about it's an, it's a, another reminder of what has been lost. So when these folks got back, I would imagine that it was that same kind of sadness. Many of the Jews chose never to return, but rather to stay in captivity, even though their captivity was less problematic than it had been in Babylon. Many of the Jews had gotten used to that for whatever reason. Your imagination can fill in the blanks there. Maybe it was comfortable in some perverse way, much more than going back and not having anything. At least captivity 
in Persia, you had three square meals a day, so to speak. We don't know exactly. Many of the Jews never returned. Even though Cyrus wanted them to reestablish the temple and the religious practices and and the culture of uh, faith, the Jews got sidetracked, the ones that did go back, and they didn't get at that immediately. They began to focus first on rebuilding their own houses. So they have a place to live. Now on a surface that seems like, okay, you need a place to live. That makes sense that you might build your own home, but it went further than that. They continued to make their houses be, this is what we're gonna see, elaborate. And the house of God lay in ruins still. So that's going to be the issue. They began to focus on rebuilding their own houses and satisfying their own desires. Now, we can't see in their hearts, but we can see that God can, and God calls that out, that selfishness. And that's what we see as we get into this. The challenge of rebuilding their lives was too much for them, and life descended into selfish pursuit of money, food, houses, and pleasures. They were so glad to be free again that they forgot who they were and why they had returned, why they might have returned. They lived only for themselves. You can see some of this. Again, I'm making a a large generalization. I know that there are exceptions to this, but we just went through a pandemic as a country. During the pandemic, There were lots of troubles, and to compensate for those troubles, there were certain resources available from our government that people took advantage of, okay. There were times where we were unable to move freely, and regardless, this is, I'm not talking about the politics of it, I'm just talking about the physical part, you were inhibited. And you were inhibited emotionally because, you know, like in our case, there were some of our kids we couldn't see for a while. And people were afraid for a number of reasons, and rightly so. And church attendance took a huge nosedive all across the country, all across the world. And so the day came some time ago where we were kind of over that. Not that people didn't occasionally still get sick and all of that, but we got to the place where some of us began to move about freely. And then bit by bit, the pandemic was certainly isn't completely over, but it was declared over. And yet some of our habits never returned, some of our good habits. It is true that a large measure of church attendance, for instance, did return, but not to the place that it was before. So there's about 10%, maybe 15% of churchgoers that never went back to church. And you can devise for yourself why you think that is. You'd probably be somewhat right. And so it's a similarity here. It's not exactly. The Jews have been in captivity for a long time. Now they've come back and they are starting again, and you find out what's really important by the priorities given to their lives by the people. What is it they think is most important? And in this particular case, uh, God's going to 
He's going to call it out because he says they lived only for themselves. So here's the deal. The call to rebuild. Let's go to chapter one of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, that's the year 520, this is 17 years after they've gotten back. So it's not like God calls them out the second day. This is 17 years after they have returned. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. So Jewish culture had a political leader and a religious leader. That's the two guys I've just mentioned. Haggai says, here's what God says, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. So God is quoting the people. And Haggai is declaring what God is saying. The people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be rebuilt. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? He's talking about the temple, God's house. They are building houses quite elaborately by then, 17 years in, and God's house hadn't even been started. Verse five, now this is what the Lord God, he keeps saying, this is God, this is God, this is God. And I quote, give careful thought to your ways. Listen up, he says. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but it's never enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So this people have been busy seeking to satisfy themselves. So I understand when you're hungry, you want to eat. When you're thirsty, you need to drink. When you're bored, Lord of mercy, I understand that. You need to do something. You need to accomplish something. I get all of that. But the motivation behind our activities, if it's not, I'm going to present to you the idea that if it's not for God or something bigger and broader than yourself, doesn't satisfy. Doesn't satisfy. And that's what God is saying about the people. They've got these nice paneled houses. They, they grow food and, and it's not enough. It, it, they eat and they're never satisfied. And so there's a yearning there that God calls out and maybe they were aware of it and maybe they aren't. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Have you ever felt like the money that you earn, you put it in a savings account, the next thing you turn around, the market's down 50% and all your money's gone? It's like the last two or three months, I worked for nothing. Or worse yet, you're out of work and you're scared. All these things God is talking about. God lists the excuses for not putting him, him first. Do all these things, but I want to be first. I want to be first. You've planted, but not harvested. Eat, but you're never full. You drink, but never are satisfied. They made money, but only to put it in purses with holes in them. Verse seven, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber 
and build the house. He's talking about God's house. He's talking about specifically the temple. So that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. God is admitting that God blew away the things they brought back, all these precious things they thought were important to them. God blew them away. And he says, why? Declares the Lord Almighty. And he answers it. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew. In other words, there was no rain. And the earth, its crops, the crops couldn't grow well. God admits to them, I called for a drought on the fields. In other words, God says the rain isn't coming. In the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle, on the labor of your hands. So a couple of things here. It's not that they were lazy. They were hard workers. They were working on the wrong thing. It's a matter of priority. They were busting their butts at the wrong job. Second thing, it's not a chance disaster that befalls them. It wasn't a bad year for crops. Their behavior called out the judgment of God. God said, I did it. In other words, he prevented what they were needing. Hmm. So God must be evil. Well, no, we're going to see here what's going on. But it's no question. I called for a drought. God wants to get their attention. God wants to get ours as well. The first thing you should presume if something befalls you is that God wants your attention. I don't know what his message to you is at any given point, but I know that when things happen that are outside of our control or maybe things happen that we did and we suffer for them, God wants to speak. Remember, Every time there's hopelessness and despair, it's an opportunity for us to trust God and to come to a new place. Every time in my life when I consider I saw a new something about God, it was always in the midst of difficulty. It's never right after I got a raise. Never. It's always right after I got fired. That hasn't ever happened, but it's come close a couple of times. But I've had lots of things, and I know you have too. So to their credit, they listen. Hallelujah. They listen to God, which is unusual. God is speaking to our country today, and nobody's listening. I shouldn't say nobody. Very few. In fact, they mock God. I understand we have political differences, and that is not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when God is speaking, we should be listening. And instead of blaming God for the bad things that happen in our lives, we should be answering God and saying, thank you for giving me an opportunity to see you more clearly in this. So verse 12, chapter 1. We're going to see two things, repentance and obedience. Repentance means changing your behavior from one way to another way. Obedience, whatever God said do, I'm going to do. We love to talk about God. 
What we don't do so well at is doing what God says. We play that, oh, well, that doesn't really matter as long as I have an emotion toward God. Hogwash. Of course it matters. And you're going to see here repentance and obedience. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat. These are the same two guys. The high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God has sent him and the people feared the Lord. Now that word feared doesn't just mean I'm afraid of you. In scripture, we already know the word fear means to honor and respect, but also to change your behavior to align yourself with the one that you honor and respect because after all, that's the way we honor and respect. Verse 13, remember the uh, song? It's a very, very, very fine house. Remember that? Okay. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I'm with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day and the sixth month of the second year of King Darius. I remember really for only one of the few times that I've ever been privileged to be part of an effort in a church of building a building. But I remember the, you remember the excitement that we felt in January of 2022 when we signed a lease on this property and we came in here in this, this same room and everybody was scurrying around and we were doing all this and people were painting and People were laying on their back, painting the floor. It's like, you know, the Sistine Chapel and all this stuff, putting in technical stuff. What was exciting to me about it is this house didn't belong to us. I mean, yes, it did by October, but this was our place of worshiping God. And it brought our fellowship together in a way that never had occurred in the history of the church. All right, maybe it should have on other issues. But I remember how, you remember how exciting it was to see, you know, people would just drop by and see what was going on. They get that roof painted black yet? <laughs> Why are they doing that? <laughs> it was exciting. And this is what happened to the people here. Now we could stop right there and say they obeyed God and they changed their direction. They moved their priorities from personal to corporate from themselves to God, et cetera, et cetera. But the real message is in chapter two, so let's jump forward. I call this the greater glory of the new house. Pay very close attention because what the house is needs to be clearly understood both then and now. So there was in chapter two begins with discouragement doused with God's presence. On the 21st day of the seventh month, uh, the word of the Lord came, all these same people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? In other words, who saw the old temple? There were few. How does it look to you now? 
Does it not seem like nothing? Beginnings of the new temple were never going to be as ornate as the first temple. How does it look to you now, God says? Does it not seem like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. What a remarkable thing for God himself to say to you, be strong. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all the people, and work, for I am with you. I love it. Of course, I love it when people come to work at the church. It's exciting because I see things change, and it's, it's wonderful. But the reason it's not because it benefits me, it benefits us. And it is a living testimony to God and his provision to us. Same thing here. Is it hard? Yeah. When Glenda was out there in the hallway painting higher than she and her husband could either one of them reach, it's hard. It's backbreaking. Some of you guys that work outside and all, a lot of our snowbirds that are gone, they were part of this as well. Be strong, for I am with you, and work. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So he's backing up all the way to Egypt. Before all the kings, before the exodus, he's backing up all the way. He covenanted to them that he would be their God and they would be his people. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Be strong and work for I am with you. I want you to take note of those words. Be strong and work, for I am with you. What an awesome antidote for a crisis. Not just the one that that is corporate. It's an antidote for your crises as well. Be strong and work, for I am with you. To those that hear this today that are dealing with unbelievable financial issues. Be strong and work for God is with you. To those that need a job, be strong and work for God is with you. To those who are in the aftermath of a disaster in your life or family, be strong and work for I am with you. Chapter two, verse six, I call this a whole lot of shaking going on. So here we see words. I grew up hearing the Messiah. This, this text is set to an aria in Messiah so beautifully. It's a bass aria. This is what the Lord says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the seas and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. Wow, that's pretty cool. Something is going to happen and the whole world would see it. It is going to be big, God says. Even though the rebuilding project of the temple was very large and long way to come, Haggai has to be talking about something in addition to the physical rebuilding of the temple because this temple would never regain the former glory physically. What he's talking about is Jesus. Jesus is the greater thing. And it would be in that building that Jesus would declare himself to be the son of God. Think about that. 500 years before, 
God says, the silver is mine in verse eight. The gold is mine. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. That has to be about Jesus. It is about Jesus. Can't be about the temple because this temple was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. Haggai's talking about a spiritual reality, something greater. All through scripture, there's pictures that God uses first physically, and they're real. But then he translates them into a broader understanding. So you learn the picture, and then you learn the discipline of how God wants you to behave. And later you learn, this is why, because something greater that he wants us to see. And Haggai talks about this greater glory that God has said. He says he will never leave this building. So there's a further um, message, I think, to this, and I'm going to tell it to you just for a second. But for a moment, I want you to think about what happens to me when the theater burns down, okay? I run a theater. Now you run your theater, and the theater has burned down in your life. You've lost everything. Where is God in that? Where is God when you've lost everything? Well, number one, you haven't lost everything because you haven't lost him. How's that work out? Let me present to you some ideas that I think come out of this. They're much broader. But the first thing is that God's calling on your life always survives. Always. God's calling on your life is eternal. When you come to know Christ as your Savior, it is not what you did. It's what God did. And God promises that that can never be taken away. We can make all kinds of arguments about works and faith and persistence and all of that. But those who have faith in Christ because they have accepted his sacrifice on Calvary's cross and have chosen to follow him have a calling. And that calling is an eternal one to be with Christ forever. God's calling always survives. First Corinthians 1, 9 says, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Out of the ashes of a fire in your life, God's calling survives. I am living proof of that. There was a time in my life where I thought my calling was over. I severely misunderstood that calling. It wasn't over. I was just being an idiot. And that's funny, haha, but it's true. I was so consumed with the pain of the experience, I couldn't see anything that God was doing until later. And he kept on, and he kept on, and he kept on. And here we are today. Out of the ashes of a fire in your life, God's calling survives. You don't have to make it survive. God makes it survive. Sometimes you may not even know it. You may deny it, but it's still true. You may feel discouraged today because of circumstances. I get that. There's days that I feel the same way. 
That's why we need things like this said to us, because we can go back to that and we can remember what the Word of God says when we feel mad at God. You may feel like a failure or a loser or an unfaithful fellow or gal. Maybe your house has burnt to the ground and it's your fault. Maybe it's somebody else's fault. God's calling survives. Once there was a man who dared God to speak, burn like the bush like you did for Moses and I'll follow you. Collapse the walls like you did for Joshua, God, and I'll fight then. Still the waves like you did on Galilee, God, and I will listen. So the man sat around near a wall by a bush close to the sea and waited for God to speak. God heard the man and God answered. He sent fire, not for a bush, but for a church. He brought down a wall, not of brick, but of sin. He stilled a storm, not of the sea, but of a soul. And God waited and waited for the man to respond. And he waited and he waited. But because the man was looking for bushes, not hearts, because the man was looking for bricks and not lives, seas and not souls, he decided that God had done nothing. Finally, the man looked up at God and said, have you lost your power? God looked down at the man and said, Have you lost your hearing? My attention needs to be on his concerns first. We call that, the Bible calls that seeking first his kingdom. If Haggai were here today, his message would be the same. Put God first. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So his kingdom and his righteousness. His kingdom is for everybody. His righteousness is me. So it's external, but it's also internal. You can't leave out either one. You can't leave out the mission God's called you for, and you can't leave out personal holiness. You have carnality on one and selfishness on the other. Pretty simple. Not easy, but simple. Sometimes it's cut and dried, what it means to be holy, and other times it's confusing. We have to step out. I can tell you that in 2004, it was these kinds of thoughts that were on our minds when we started this church. There's the original logo of the church. And putting Jesus first was added there for this reason. Because we wanted people to see that we had something we were trying to live up to. And it's uh, hard. It's hard to put Jesus first when you're out of food. It's hard to put Jesus first when you have to lay off a pastor. It's hard to put Jesus first when you've lost your job. It's hard to put Jesus first when people misunderstand your motives and your actions and they curse you. It's hard. And yet, at least our intention has always been and is still that the main thing is to put Jesus first. If we put him first in our individual lives, he will be first in our corporate life. His kingdom and his righteousness. A third thing. So we're understanding that God's calling always survives. My attention needs to be on his concerns first. 
And the third thing, and this is the greater meaning of the house business. The house was the first temple. Then the house is the second temple. But we know from scripture that when Jesus came, he declared that the temple of God is us, people. He declared that the temple of God is with men again. And when you come to know Christ, it is God's presence that indwells the believer. It's why we as Christians can say, this is just a building. We just use it. We hopefully will use it up. We paint it whatever color the function requires. But the real temple of God is not this building. God doesn't live in here. When we turn the alarm on at night, it's truly empty. But I'm not empty when I leave, and neither are you if you're a Christian. The presence of God indwells every believer. That's what happens the moment you come to Christ. So the house being rebuilt isn't just the second temple. It's me. God is rebuilding me. I'm the building that God lives in. You're the building. And that blows my mind because it's like the first temple, the second temple, Mickey Bryce, Mike Lamb, John Allen, John Hedlund, Pam Hedlund, all of you guys. Everybody is the place where God resides if you know Christ. The greater glory is the presence of God in our lives because that's inexplicable to people that don't know why that is. This is why it's so important that we live lives that are worthy of our calling. The greater glory is his presence. It is we who are the house. Ephesians 2, 19 says, No longer are we strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. So all of us are the temple together. That's just mind-boggling to me. All, out of all this Judaism comes the body of Christ as the temple. Why? Because Christ did it. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And that's what we're talking about here. So the house being rebuilt is me. Jesus lives there. And lastly, because he lives there, his presence gives me peace. Listen to the last part of the passage in Haggai. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. Yes, there is an understanding that that happened in the second temple. But I would present to you that the greater application is that we are the temple of God, according to the New Testament. The greater glory is the peace that is offered to us because of what Christ did for us on the cross. I can't wrap my mind around that enough. I can dwell on it every day, all day, and still not get it fully. If you do, come and talk to me because I need your help. 
If it is true that we are the present house, then it is a promise from God that in the place where we live, he brings peace. I would present to you that the entire New Testament says that's true. John himself writes, peace I live with you, quoting Jesus. My peace I give you, I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. So, hallelujah. If you're struggling today, change your focus on what God's doing in your life. And maybe you need to claim God has promised you, which is peace instead of turmoil. One of America's greatest poets was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The year 1860 found Longfellow happy in his life, but it was all about to fall apart. The Civil War began on July 9th, 1861. His wife was burned alive in a fire. He was sleeping in the next room, was awakened by her screams as she desperately tried to put out the fire, and he came and did the same. He was burned on his face and hands. She died. Longfellow's white beard, which so identified with him, was one of the results of this tragedy. The burn scars on his face made it impossible for him to shave. In his diary for Christmas Day, 1861, he said, how inexpressibly sad are the holidays. In 1862, the toll of war dead began to mount, and in his diary, he wrote about Christmas, a Merry Christmas, say the children, but no more for me. In 1863, his son, who had run away to join the Union Army, was severely wounded and returned back to his home. On Christmas Day, 1864, at age 57, Longfellow sat down to write to try to capture, if possible, the joy of the season, but it was difficult. He began, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat, peace on earth, goodwill to men. As he came to the third stanza, he was stopped by the thought of the condition of his country. The Battle of Gettysburg was not long past. Days looked dark, and he probably asked himself the question, how can I write about peace in this country? But he kept on writing. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Sound familiar? It seems as if he could have been writing for our day. Then, as all of us should do, he turned his thoughts to the one who gives true and perfect peace. And he continued writing, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Don't tell me that old hymns don't speak. Romans 15 says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, hopelessness and despair are perfect opportunities to trust God. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for these reminders. We love you, and we confess that all too often we aren't very proud of the way we've loved you. I pray that somehow you might blow through our silliness and our stepping aside of what you're asking 
and our rationalizations and all the tricks we play to be able to do whatever it is we want. But I pray today for those that need peace in their life, whether they're here in this room or listening to the recording. I pray that people might turn to you for this peace because that's the only place that it's truly found. All these other things that we might do, we eat but we are never satisfied, we drink but our thirst is never satiated, we work but it's never fulfilling until we find our rest in you. And then all of it fits together in some remarkable way and things start adding up in ways that we haven't seen before. It's as if you knew what you were doing when you told us to do that. We thank you today that you have left events in our world that cause us to ask questions. I pray that when we ask those questions, we might know your word already enough that we might be able to answer them and remind ourselves of what this particular passage is saying, and that is, God, you just want us to trust you. You just want us to love you as best we can in our failed human way. You, you want us to allow you to change us so that we become better people, more humble, more peaceful, more gentle, and yet more courageous and more willing to fight for what we believe is right in a way that would bring glory to you. Thank you, Father, for Haggai and for the place that he occupied in the story of God. Today, we pray for each person that's listening, for the storms in their lives, for the theaters that have burned down all across our country. I pray, Father, that you might allow us to rebuild that, that we might understand really that the, the rebuilding is personal. It's about me. It's about you. You want to live inside of me. You just need an invitation. So God, come and visit us with your presence today. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us for the next lesson in this Center Stage teaching series and tell a friend about our His Story podcast. For more information about Center Stage Church in Gold Canyon, Arizona, visit centerstagechurch.org.